This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Can you recall no. a more devastated by the weather series than this particular series? And you know series? what as well? It was set up beautifully. I, I really fancied Pakistan to, to go there and, and as they did in the first test, they pushed England all the way in. And listen, they had to, to, to rectify it. We, we spoke about it a few weeks ago, Pakistan's recent record over the past decade. It's been a bit of a happy hunting ground, their meetings with England. And yet... The weather has decimated this series. The two young bowlers, I was looking forward to, to seeing a lot more of as well. And yeah, I'm just a little bit deflated by it all. England will win it. They'll win it because of, well, two draws, because Test Match 2 and Test Match 3 have been and, essentially and, and, and they down. have been, OK, Test Match 2 was a complete washout, but Test Match 3, they've been the better team. England have. I mean, and 583 for eight declared. First. I get that, but you want these cricket matches to be finished on the field, Rob. We want to be yep. talking about perhaps Jimmy Anderson reaching 600 test wickets. We want perhaps another century as our Ali to step up. You know, Baba Azams of this world. And that's well, not happened. And it's just a bit of a joke. As our Ali is having a fantastic test match thus far because he was not out 141 from a 272 deliveries. He is currently at the crease he is on 29. He's alongside uh, another talismanic figure in the Pakistan batting lineup. That is Baba Azam. He's on four, not out. He's faced 16 balls, has Baba Azam. So his innings has taken a little while to get going. I am watching the live updates and I am seeing that play will start in 10 minutes' time. But again, it's all just a little bit ceremonial. It is. At the moment, there will not be a conclusion, you feel, to this match. It will end in a draw. But Pakistan, 100 for two. They've got eight wickets in hand and you'd back them at this stage. It's just seven minutes past four over in the UK. You'd back them to, to bat out the rest of the day. England are not going to get them all out and it's going to finish 1-0, a series victory to England. So uh, let's just see how things pan out in the remainder of the overs that we've got left for today. Uh, of course, uh, I'm just sticking with cricket, if I may, Rob. Uh, of course, all the IPL teams now here, not all the players that will be partaking in said IPL, but the teams, the team management, they are here, they are dotted around Dubai and Abu Dhabi. My little birdies are telling me two teams in Abu Dhabi, six down here in Dubai, various hotels around the two Emirates. They are isolating their preparing, of course, for the IPL, which gets underway on September the 19th. We're looking forward to following that very closely over the course of the best part of two months. It's great to have the IPL here. Eight franchises, 53 matches in total. And, yeah, Virat Kohli is in attendance. He is here. He's been posting up on his social media. He's getting used to life here and he's going to settle in because, as all these players do, if you do get all the way through to the final, it's basically... Yeah, more than two months in actual fact they're already here it's already August so it's best part of two and a half months and I wonder are the Mumbai Indians finally going to fire in the IPL I wonder yes that is, question. that is a because good question because they are when you think of underachieving teams Royal Challengers Bangalore is the big one though that's yeah. the one Virat Kohli of course they had Chris Gailey be the Villiers it's Roy if, if anything else and I'd love to actually hear from our listeners on this I, I think it's Royal Challengers Bangalore you think? top heavy I've always thought that I mean when they had was it last year Chris Gale E.B. de Villiers and Virat Kohli. And you think to yourself, that is a team that should be blasting everyone off the park. But of course, T20 is more nuanced than that. You need bowlers that are tight, you know, bowlers that are not expensive on the run count. And listen, for, for Virat this year, of course, all eyes will be on him. He is someone, of course, that has a huge, a legion of followers, being India cricket captain, being the poster boy of Indian cricket. And, and he is here. He's a bit of a man on a mission. 
this year, I think, to get Royal Challengers Bangalore over the line. We will look and wait to see how that plays out. We're looking as well and anticipating the return potentially of UFC to Abu Dhabi yeah. in uh, well the, September, October. The September, October time, the fall period. And of course, news today finalised and we were all expecting it, but we didn't quite know how the uh, Formula One season, the 2020 season, would be concluded. It turns out that three countries will host four races, Turkey, Bahrain, and of course here in the UAE, down in the capital for the final race of the season, 13th of December, so a couple of weeks later than it is usually held down at the Yas Marina circuit. But I suppose, I think given the fact we're going to get 17 races, first and foremost, that is a satisfactory amount of races 100%. to decide a you know world what that champion. Does? It quells anyone who thinks that if Lewis does go on to win, there would be an asterisk beside mm. his seventh and record-equaling world title if he does indeed go on to win it. Of course, Michael Schumacher holds that record. 17 races. Okay, it's the lowest number since 2009, so we're going back 11 years. But equally, 17 races to me feels sufficient enough to doff your cap to uh, whoever wins this world championship. Because, uh, because of course, the other aspect to all of, uh, all of it is, yes, there's no fans in these circuits all around Europe and all around the world, etc. But equally, it's one of those sports that I don't think necessarily fans in the stands really matters to those drivers behind the steering wheel. So 17 races is satisfactory for me. It will be the final race of the season. So it's nice to see Yasmarina Circuit once again lit up in lights. And the other thing to point out, Rob, and this is bad news for you and other golfing fans, is that that Sunday will clash directly with the DP World Tour Championship. There's only one place I'll be, and that is Jumeirah Golf Estates. <laughs> Hopefully, if we're allowed to be on-site yeah. broadcasting, yeah, fingers that crossed. is a question for another day. So, You're a cricketer. You strike me as being a bit of a cricketer back as a wee boy. I, I, I was. Um, I, I, I played all the kind of classic English sports. So I played football and rugby in the winter, and I played tennis and cricket in the summer. And I wasn't very good at any of them, it's fair to say. <laughs> Uh, and what particularly, were you? Were you a bat, particularly or a cricket, yeah, because I, I I was useless as a bowler, useless. But it was not like I was a stout opening bat either. So there wasn't really a place for me. It's a bit like on the football pitch. There's no real place to hide me. Yeah. On the football pitch, I'd often end up kind of just flanked on the sidelines. Not for my pace, I might add. <laughs> it was, and then in rugby as well, they'd, they'd pop me as a flanker because I wasn't fast enough to be a back. And when you're a kid, being a forward isn't as technical a job oh, no. as when you're a, a kind of fully-fledged adult rugby player. You've just got to huff and puff a bit in the ruck and the maul. Yeah, so I was in the B team for Beaconsfield Rugby Club. Our A team were, they, they were, you know, local heroes. They would conquer all and sundry. The B team, of which I was a member, <laughs> would get soundly whooped by everyone that the A team was beating on our weekend trips to go and play various places like London Welsh and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but cricket. yeah, in, cr in cricket, I was just marooned in the outfield for most of the time. I just remember it being a time where I was stood with my hands in the pockets, praying that the ball did not come <laughs> hurtling towards me at any point. And uh, occasionally I would be sent into bat and those innings would not last yeah. overly long. But yeah, my cricket career was not a distinguished one. No. I finally found my feet with golf. What about you? I can't imagine you lumbering into no. bowl. no. No, no, no. Up in Scotland, to be fair, in my, in my village, for where I'm from in the northeast of Scotland, there is a, a lovely little cricket club, in actual fact, and there were some nifty players. In actual fact, I think the head of Scotland's national team media is a former 
uh, alumni of my high alumni, school. Eh? Yes, indeed. Uh, and he was a nifty cricketer, but no, cricket was never. Love it to watch it. You never had the weather for it. Never. Yeah, exactly that. They're all <laughs> rained off. washing out test matches. Yeah, they're all rained off up in, in my part of the world. But yeah, cricket was a sport. I love watching, don't get me wrong, and, and you know that. But to play it, nah, unfortunately, I've never spent an afternoon, as yeah. you would say, and hands I had and friends pockets. who were obsessed with it, and you know, they were all all about, just as I was discovering the, 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 the magic of the Wilson tennis racket as used by Pete Sampras back in the 90s, a lot of my friends were investing in kookaburra bats <laughs> and just, you know, really taking their cricket to the next level, and I just was not doing no, that. No, you went, took a different path. I took a different fair. path. I, I went down the golf and tennis route, which, which I don't regret. Let us know, a lot of you getting in touch for our competition, Sachin Tendulkar's team in the IPL, that's to win uh, some Astro sometime at the next session down at the ICC Academy. Let us know your cricketing stories as well. I know an awful lot of you are budding cricketers and there's heck of a talent. You don't need to go far around Dubai to see the talent, certainly at weekends on the, the dust bowls here, that there are some fantastic cricketers, young and old, it's got to be said, playing the game that they do love. So let us know your little cricketing story. Hopefully it's better than mine or Rob's. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it will be. Last week, we spoke to a Scottish world champion. Yeah, we did. We were just talking about they haven't produced too many world champion cricketers, but they have produced a WWE wrestler in the shape of Drew McIntyre, who is the current heavyweight world champion in WWE. In tennis, Chris, Andy Murray, a former champion, Scott, yeah. of the tennis courts, a former world number one, a three-time Grand Slam champion, a man who's won the US Open. He's won two... Uh, Wimbledon titles as well. Two Olympic golds as Two well. Two Olympic golds. He is arguably, you've put it out there, maybe Britain's greatest ever sportsman. I think he is. He is attempting what I would say would be a comeback tantamount to the Tiger Woods comeback if oh, he's yeah. able to win. If he's able to go and go ahead and, and ultimately win a Grand, Grand Slam, Slam. Oh. which I, for me is not happening. I don't think Andy Murray will ever get back to that level just simply because of the demands that tennis places versus golf. You know, I think uh, when you have spinal surgery as a golfer and it works, you can work with that. When you have the kind of hip procedure that Andy Murray has had, and I've watched the documentary, I watched it over Christmas last year, and it was just an incredibly eye-opening look into how frustrating an injury like that can be and how debilitating it can be. And it takes off. Andy Murray, as we know, is a man who built his career around retrieving. Obviously, he was a wonderful tennis player he had a great brain for tennis he had fantastic ground strokes he had a decent serve but come come the kind of peak of his career but he would scurry around yeah. his movement around the court was incredible Fitness. he was second only perhaps to Novak Djokovic in his court coverage and his ability to, to slide to reach balls that other players were not getting right after, you'd agree with that mm, third after Rafa I still think Rafa as scurrier some, some maybe, of what yeah. Rafa can maybe, do. but he was but up yeah, there. He, he was, was up there, no particularly on the grass as well. No Andy's, Andy's court coverage was incredible, and that that documentary explained that over a uh, twenty foot burst, so that just short that five yard burst of pace, that six seven yard burst of pace, Andy lost half a second wow. in speed due to the hip recovery, due to the due, due to the resurfacing of his hip. The documentary actually is called Resurfacing. And, uh, and it's, um, it, it just paints a very vivid picture of how debilitating that is and how it completely robbed him of his, his absolute core strength, mm. one of the pillars of his game. Because now he's one of the slowest 
he's one of the the, the the last to go and retrieve a ball as opposed to being one of the first. And on a game of margins, that is uh, that, that, that would hugely impact and affect the, the, the quality of the tennis that he's able to, pr- to play. But he's been plugging away and his determination shines through in that documentary as well. The fact that, first of all, he just loves it. He loves tennis and he doesn't want to just slink off into the night and, and, uh, and into the sunset of his career. No. He, want, he wants to continue playing. He's 33. Legitimately, he's a year older than Sampras was when he retired. Andy Murray's had an amazing career, as we've just outlined. He could easily retire, but there's something still burning inside of him. And uh, he's just beaten a top 10 player for the first time since 2017 yep. in uh, the ever flaky Alexander Zverev, who but, is brilliant one second and mediocre and, the and next. not to take anything away from Andy's victory, it was two hours, 31 minutes, long time on court for Andy. He did prevail against Zverev, 6-3-3-6-7-5. Alexander Zverev, world number seven, lest we forget. And Andy, formerly world number one, three-time Grand Slam winner, two-time Olympic gold medalist, currently ranked 134th. Heck of a victory that he'll now face Milos Ranic of Canada. Who and beat I said in the this, Wimbledon final? Who he did beat. You're absolutely spot on. You're right. He did beat Milos Ranic in that final. And what I said to you this morning on the golf course, Rob, and I think it rings true. The real acid test. I'm taking nothing away from Andy. Fantastic victory. He'll gain huge confidence from that victory over Alexander Zverev. The real test now is how does that hip bear up after two hours thirty-one minutes on court? How does that hip now feel today as he goes in to face Milos Ranic because if it, if it feels fine and he can r- overcome Ranic I don't care if it's six love six love I think that is the more impressive result if he was to beat Ranic because what does that tell me it tells me that physically Andy Murray is there and that he is perhaps a danger and perhaps a dark horse for the US Open that starts next oh, week, of course. That would be brilliant, wouldn't it? Imagine oh. if he has a run in the US Open. It would oh. be fantastic. It really would. It would be amazing. And I was watching a little bit of the highlights. It is tennis, and we talked a little earlier about how Formula One comparatively is a sport that's able to get away with a lack of fans. You don't hear the crowd noise, really, when you've got the engines of those Formula One cars. Whew, tennis is eerie. It is. It's bizarre. It's really weird. Yeah, in big stadiums that are empty, and they've not done as good a job as football did at masking the fact well, that no one is there. I, I think again, the, the problem just... with that is you've got 22 blokes running around the paddock when it comes to football. You hear their shouts, man on, and you hear some industrial language as well. Take away the fans from a vast... It's take a away lonely fans sport, tennis. ...from Flushing Meadows, for example, which is this imposing structure. It's just two blokes or two women hitting the ball to one another. I mean, I think... You can make a good argument to say, talk about no fans. That's probably the sport that suffers the most. And I wonder if that has played its part in one or two of the players, not for me. Because, you know, we often say it's a lonely place. Even in boxing, you've got the coaches and the coaching teams shouting instructions. UFC, similar. Mm. In tennis, it's two gladiators. Yeah. Just whacking a tennis ball at one another. Yeah, and actually, you, you hear and with just with the bo- boxing where you can you can audibly hear the force of the punches when Dillian White fought Alexander Povetkin. I think with tennis, the the ferocity of the shots is amplified by the fact there's no crowd there. 
and there's that there's there's no hum mm. of the crowd and i know they do usually go quiet for those points but there's always that background Ooh, hum. Ours, yeah uh, you really do i mean they do absolutely pound the ball from the back of the court but andy murray great win for him six three three six seven five novak Djokovic, world number one who's he's been through the ringer these last couple of months with his ill-fated Adrian Self-inflicted, tour. Robert. He is uh, completely, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, unrepentant. Yep. He is, he, he's... He's laid low is what ref- no, but, but, but in an interview with the New York Times, he refused to, to, to carry the can. He, he, was, he was unapologetic for Adrian Tour. He said he'd do it all over again if he could. <sighs> Please, I didn't uh, see that interview. Yeah, no, no, he did. He said he'd do it again, given the chance. He said his intentions were good. He said that it's a witch hunt, that he should not be the one to, be, to, to take the blame. But at the same time, as you, when you are a legend of the sport and you're world number one and you're a 17-time Grand Slam champion... You do, unfortunately, carry yeah. that much more responsibility. Yeah, than, whether you like it or not, than a Grigor Dimitrov. Of course, uh, uh, absolutely, of course. And and it was uh, his concept. Yeah, and I think Novak, in actual fact, has said that previously that he feels as if he is a bastion for the sport. So you can't have it one way one day and then mm. another the next. And listen, it's not a witch hunt. He was a silly boy, as they all were. You know, your Dominic teams and your your Gregor Dimitrovs as well. But you're absolutely right. It was his construct. It was he that was, with a few others, in the nightclub with his shirt off, acting a bit of the goat. And, uh, yeah, all the, the, the kind of bad publicity that he's got has been warranted, I feel. And, listen, Novak will do his talking on the court. He will go as the, go in as the overwhelming favourite to win the US Open. I just, I really hope that the lack of fans, which will detract, I think, from the quality, will lead to just a bit like the UEFA Champions League, maybe we'll throw in a few curveballs. We didn't see Lyon getting to the semi-finals. Yeah. You know, I just hope that that is the case because tennis needs a bit of a shot in the arm. It does. I want to turn our attention, if we can, to football and the transfer window, which is moving on at pace. But that being said, still a few things that are stalling it, Chris. There's, it's all gone a bit quiet on the Jaden Sancho front. It certainly has. Has it not? It's gone very quiet for Man United. I think there's about to be a mutiny on social media. I mean, it's now been what? A week and a bit since they bowed out, you'd expect a little bit of business to be done. Because yeah. if and, and this is for the most, you know, optimistic of Man U fans. If you are out there thinking that United can close the gap to Liverpool to City off the back of just what they've done from January onwards, do you think Edward Woods thinking that? No, I'm sure he isn't. I'm sure he's been told by proper footballing men and, and women if there are. But that's the problem. The in the team, the people that, surrounding him are not proper footballing men. Well, Solskjaer and, and Carrick and McKenna and that are, but yeah, I think there are... Head uh, of transfers is a former yeah, lawyer, I yeah, believe. Yeah, you're right. Mr Arnold, there is. I think there is a problem there, there's no doubt. And there will be full-scale mutiny if Man United start next season. And I know that the, de- the deadline and the window's open till October the 5th, but let's not, you know, let's make no mistake about it. United are three, four players still shy. Mm. And that's with all the money that they have spent post-Fergie. But um, The yeah. one that has caught us off guard, I think, a little bit, I don't think anyone was really expecting this simply because I think there's been so much talk of Roman Abramovich's love for Chelsea waning. cooling, yeah. waning, maybe. The fact that this uh, this visa issue continues to dog him. The yeah. fact that his relationship, perhaps, with the UK itself has frayed over the last couple of years. That he was perhaps losing interest in investing quite so much of his considerable wealth into the Stamford Bridge Club. The fact that they've already spent nearly £85 million, uh, they've signed Timo Werner, Hakim Ziyech as well. 
they are obviously targeting several others. Uh, Kai Havertz being the, the big one. It's class. Um, ben Chilwell, fifty million pounds. Mike Magnan. Um, Chelsea. Thiago Silva. Chelsea as well. could uh, could easily uh, get into the top five biggest ever splurges oh, in a summer transfer it's window. It's incredible. Now, it's worth a little bit of context to this. Of course, last season they had their transfer ban. Eden Hazard was sold for huge money. I know a bit of that was invested in Christian Pulisic and Matteo Kovacic, which a lot of people forget. They actually ushered him his permanent deal and he was on loan the season before that and Frank Lampard took up the option 40 plus million for him. Pulisic wasn't cheap either. But there's money burning a hole in their pocket and what they've done is they've backed Frank to the hilt because they've signed Werner, who I'm a huge fan of. Ziyech, I'm a huge fan of from Ajax. Oh, Havertz is someone I know every major club has looked at for Bayer Leverkusen. And at 21, he is the poster boy of German football moving forward. Then I get a little bit envious if they start signing Ben Chilwell, who I know defensively I've still got one or two question marks on. But when you're a team that, and I think Frank wants his Chelsea team to monopolise possession, be on the front foot, moving, you know, going forward, Ben Chilwell is, is an excellent fullback. Throw in Milan Sar, this young Frenchman from Nice who they're looking at, apparently, according to reports on a Bosman. Throw in the experience of Thiago Silva, the PSG skipper, the Brazilian veteran, who again adds real good depth and experience to that inexperienced back line. And all of a sudden, that is ambitious. It is, it's conviction is what it is, because they've gone out and they're doing their business early, quickly, effectively. I mean, if you're a Chelsea fan right now, you must be cock-a-hoop. You really must, because Ziyech, Werner, Havertz, Saar, Ben Chilwell, they're all under the age of 24, 25. I think Ziyech might be the oldest at 26 of that, but the rest of them are, are 25 and under. Thiago Silva adds a bit of experience, but all of a sudden, that Chelsea team and squad, it's exciting. And the brand of football that Frankie wants to play... Oh, it's going to be in. If you're a Chelsea fan, you're going to be in for an exciting season next season, that's for sure. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And I, I did th think it was interesting just taking a look at the five biggest splurges in the summer transfer window <laughs> period. And I, I want to talk to you about those because when you look at how each of these teams has done, okay, they've had success. Not going to deny that. There's definitely been success there. But what they set out to do, perhaps, and the money that they spent, there's a little bit of an imbalance there between teams that have not spent as much yeah. and have actually achieved more. So I'm going to, and you did very well during the ad break with guessing which teams would be part of this. Number five, coming in at number five, spending a grand total of £212 million. That's Ooh. over a billion dirhams in 2018. Juventus. Now, they signed back in 2018. Ronnie? They signed Ronnie for just shy of £100 million. They signed Douglas Costa for £35.2 million. Mattia Perrin, Joe Cancelo, Jao Cancelo, I beg your pardon, £36 million, who is long gone. Um, they splashed out in a big way. And uh, they have... OK, fine. They've continued to excel in the uh, in the, the Scudetto and Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, we know what he delivers. He's been a goal-scoring machine for Juventus, just as he was for Real Madrid. But interestingly, given the fact they were runner-up in the Champions League, the competition they really covered in 2015 and in the one we watched at the Cardiff Principality Stadium, 2017, they've not ventured past the last eight since they signed Cristiano Ronaldo in the two editions that they've played 
with Cristiano at the helm. So essentially what you're saying is they've spent 200 million plus on... To win the Champions League. Keeping the status quo, winning the Scudetto, and they didn't even win the Coppa Italia this season either. Effectively. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Now, I'm not saying that they've depreciated as a team. I'm sure in terms of their value, as we've talked about, Ronaldo has added greatly to that. But have they they achieved what they set out to do with that kind of outlay? I would say no. No. Paris Saint-Germain, it's the same kind of deal. They came pretty close this year, but in 2017, they spent £214 million. They bought Kylian Mbappe, of course, who joined on loan from Monaco. And they spent, that was £166 million ultimately. Neymar was £200 million. Um, now that, of course, came in little bits and pieces. It didn't all come in one yeah. summer because Kylian Mbappe's move was finalised a little bit later on. But they also signed from Cheltenham Town, Yuri Berchiche, for £14.4 million, who moved From to Cheltenham the part- yeah, Town? Yeah. But if it moved to the Parc des Princes, yeah. From Cheltenham that, Town? That's what, I'm, that's what I'm reading. Cheltenham Town legend. Yeah, maybe he's a legend, but I'm sure... Maybe he isn't a legend. Athletic, anyway. Athletic Bilbao, I think they got that, that individual. For, I need to double-check that, but... Well, double-check no that. Either, either way, PSG, having spent that money, have not done what they set out to do, which is win the Champions League. Real Madrid occupied two of the top three spots, Chris. 2019, they spent £272.6 million. That is the current record. Eden Hazard, yeah. 88.5 million. Luka Jovic, 52.4 million. Rodrigo, 40 Oof. million. Eda Militao, 42.7. Ferland Mendy, 47 million. I mean, when you look at those names, given the fact that Eden Hazard has been a bit of a disaster thus far, that has not gone according to plan. That is a mitigating disaster, is what it is. And Eden Hazard is the, the chief among them. I mean, he's just, his star is. Is on the wane. I know he had his injury problems, but that is staggering. They are number one, the most spent. They are in the number summer. one. They also in two thousand and nine. La Liga, though. Two thousand and nine, which I suppose when you consider inflation and football transfer fees, this might have been even bigger. Two hundred nineteen point five million, but this was eleven years ago when they bought Kaka for fifty six. When they bought Cristiano Ronaldo from Man United for eighty million, they spent sixty million on Karim Benzema and Xavi Alonso. That same summer. Yeah, I believe so. Holy moly! That was. Now, when you think about that, they laid the foundations for a lot of success there. But they didn't have that much success initially because, well, the season prior to that, they had when Bernd Schuster and Juan de Ramos combined to finish a distant second in La Liga. They'd lost 2-0 and 6-2 to Barcelona. They'd been dumped out of the Champions League 5-0 on aggregate by Liverpool. Now, when they bought all those players, they still lost in the last 16 of the Champions League and in the Copa del Rey, respectively. And they still came six, uh, second to Barcelona in La Liga. I want to throw it out there. I can't, I'm astonished at that. Ronaldo, Kaká, Xabi Alonso and Karim Benzema is the greatest transfer window I can it's got recall. To be. Yeah, it if anyone be. can beat that, 4-0-0-1. That is astonishing. Ronaldo, Kaká, Benzema and Xabi Alonso. Wow. I've been talking about signing players in this summer transfer window. What about getting rid of players who are no longer fit for purpose? And this is a story the like of which I've never come across before, Chris. I'm sure you're a very well-read man in the world of football. You may not even have come across something like this. Las Palmas over in Spain, they hired a private detective to spy on their own player. The reason they did this was because they wanted to find him in breach of contract. Wow. His name is Tana. Do you know him? I do not, Rob. Uh, Las Palmas, who have slipped he's, out. He's obviously not one of their big, <laughs> no. big, big 
midfield it's, dynamos. It's, to be fair, it's been a while since I followed Las Palmas. Of course, David Silva, the Man City legend as he is, he is someone that I think did he start his career there or he's from there. The, the famous one, of course, back when I was growing up was Vinny Samways, former Everton midfielder. He famously rocked up at Las Palmas because they did have, for a couple of seasons... Do you know what it sounds? It sounds like a holiday club, Las Palmas. Yes, it does. It sounds like the kind of place you go and drink mocktails <laughs> by on the Costa del Sol uh, and not play to, serious La Liga I'm football. to Las Palmas for yeah. a week. Yeah, exactly. I'm off to the Las Palmas <laughs> resort and spa. I'll and see I, you later. I'll see you in a week's time. I'm not moving from said resort. It's a lovely place, the Canary Islands, oh, so I'm told. Stunning, yeah, I'm yeah. sure it is. Good for surfing, apparently. I cannot believe that, though. They hired an investigator. Yeah, they did. Well, well they... Uh, they wanted to offload this this guy Tanner, and um, they'd opened actually disciplinary proceedings against the player earlier in the year. And according to Cadena Cope and Marca, of course we know Marca, one of the big tabloids over there in Spain, the decision was made from officials within the club to pay for a private investigator Shocking. to follow this guy Tanner on a daily basis tail him hour to hour to be on hand to witness if he stepped out of line in some way, shape or form. Now, that, those findings were reported back to the club, hoping that they would then have grounds to release him from his contract three years before its expiration date. Shocking dates. that, you know and that. And of course, he got wind of this. He's 29 years of age. He's not stupid. He got his lawyers on the case. And uh, after finding out that he'd been spied on, a legal battle has subsequently ensued, and I believe it is still ongoing. But that is the first time I've ever heard of a club going to those lengths to get rid, rid of, I mean, of an undesirable. Listen, I know COVID-19 has had an impact on all football clubs, but there are ways and means to go about it. That's That smacks of, there's a football player who's got a three-year contract, he's probably paid handsomely, and they just want rid. And Surprised Ed Woodward hasn't employed the same <laughs> tactic for Paul Pogba, Chris. <laughs> Given oh, that Mina right now has been saying, nah, he's staying. Isn't that that Ed Woodward's decision, not Mina Raiola's? Well, that's the way the world of football is going, Rob. Agents have a greater say. But no, Ed, Ed would never get rid of Paul. He sells too many (laughs) T-shirts. True. Too many Pogba six shirts, unfortunately. But that is a great little story. And and I hope, and I genuinely mean this, because uh, football clubs at times, not worth, contracts are not worth the paper they're written on. I hope Tana takes them to the cleaners and is paid handsomely. A final word, and we will leave you tonight on a very optimistic note because a couple of stories. Now, I know that they are fraught with sort of potential problems, shall we say, but it's it's good nonetheless that Mm. we are talking about them because we're talking about returning spectators to sporting stadiums. Now, the UEFA Super Cup is acting as a test ground for a partial return of spectators. This, of course, taking place on the 24th of September in Budapest. It is pitting the Europa League winner Sevilla against our champions of Europe. That is Bayern Munich. And there are apparently going to be scope for 30% of spectators in the capacity stadium. So that, that is good. Uh, it's a testing ground that UEFA are using. Right. All normal games beso- out with the Super Cup will be still continue to be held behind closed doors until further notice. But uh, the UEFA president, Alexander Seferin, has been talking at length about how the game has lost something of its character. Well, I mean, glad he observed that and glad, glad yeah, he's admitted and acknowledged yeah. that because I think it's important that uh, we don't get too comfortable, too used to the idea of playing behind closed doors. Over in the US as well, Miami Dolphins yeah. in the NFL, 
they are planning on admitting 13,000 fans, which would again be about the 30 percent. 25, 30% uh, capacity mark to their stadium in what has been described as a risky plan, given that South Florida has been a COVID hotspot. Well, it's interesting. 15, I know 15 of the 32 NFL teams, they've ruled out spectators for the start of the season. They're going on a softly, softly approach. There are eight teams, though, that are hoping to have limited number of spectators. Surely it's got to be one rule for all. From the kickoff. Well, again, it's it's different hotspots, right? It's different areas of the country. Certainly the US, we know the vast size that it is. And if the cases are low, I think the the league has given the, the teams themselves autonomy on that to make a decision. So, listen, from an NFL standpoint, it is America's game. They just want the season up and running. And that will be interesting because it's fair to say it's divided political leaders, that Miami move. And Bill's coach, Sean McDermott, not a happy chappy at all with that decision. So we watch the space with that. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.